Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always, and I am delighted to be joined by two guests, two uh, friends of mine, one return guest, one new guest, to join me for what I think should be a, a very fun episode, certainly for us and hopefully for the listeners as well. Back with us is Sasha Skolnick-Brower, who is a uh, graduate, like I am, of the Aspen Conducting Academy and a graduate, not like I am, of the uh, Juilliard Conducting Program. Uh, Sasha, welcome back. Where are you coming to us from currently? Uh, Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. I'm in New York City and anxiously awaiting the snowstorm tomorrow. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot that. We're going to get like one inch uh but i heard the east coast is getting pretty excited yeah that'll be that'll be exciting uh and we've also got i think also somewhere in new york maury Cohn, who's a new guest on the podcast also a graduate of the american not the american it's the name has changed from the american academy of conducting at aspen to the aspen conducting academy huge change but uh also a student at the eastman school of music in conducting as well. So, Maury, welcome to the pod. Where are you coming to us from? Hi. Also very happy to be here. I am coming from Rochester, where our snow started today. So, um, you know, slightly ahead of Sasha. Nice. Nice. Well, it'll be it'll be at Sasha soon. And, and I guess for some reason, Indianapolis, which is completely west of you guys, is also getting snow tomorrow. But different storm. In any case, the point of our episode today is to do something that um, it's a game that I uh, admittedly play with myself all the time in the car uh, growing up. This was one of my favorite things to do. Not ashamed to admit it. Um, And I want to welcome, I want to thank our guests for joining me in this endeavor today because we've all agreed to potentially embarrass ourselves. It it takes a certain amount of willingness and vulnerability on the, the point of our guests to come on this show and admit that we might not know every single piece of classical music that has ever been composed. But let me tell our guests a little bit about the game that we are going to be playing. We have each chosen two clips that we have uh, run by our our fellow game players on this pod today to make sure that no one knows what these pieces are. And one of us is going to play a clip that we've chosen that we know the other two don't know what what the piece actually is. And the other two are going to try to guess what the composer is, what the kind of time period that this piece was written in, and if they can try to actually guess the piece itself, all the better. And I I kind of took the inspiration for this episode from something else that I love doing, which is uh, which I'm much worse at than than maybe although I might make a fool of myself on this podcast, but that is blind tasting wine. And real experts, when they drink wine, um, they have a list of criteria that they go through to narrow down what type of wine it might actually be that they're tasting. So they talk about tannin and acidity and body and alcohol level and color and um, volatile acidity. They smell the wine. They try to get different aromas and different tastes. Um, And those all go into their kind of final conclusion about the grape, the place, the vintage, and then the specific type of this actual wine that they they might try to guess that it is. 
So we're going to play that game with with uh, some music today. And I figured we'd start with the we're going to do three of these episodes, but I figured we'd start with the romantic era. I'm curious to get uh, our guests take on on this. But for me, intuitively, it felt like the romantic era would be both the hardest one for us to find things that could stump our fellow competitors, because at least for me, I can think of in the Baroque era, for example, there are. 10,000 pieces that you could have sent me that I probably would not have known. But from the famous composers of the Romantic era, there aren't that many. So I think it it makes it hard for us to find stuff. On the flip side, I think it's the easiest for us and for our guests to actually potentially guess because there's so much uh, differentiation and style. I'm curious to get your guys' take on that, but also let's just talk about, um, Sasha, maybe we'll start with you. Let's just talk about when you think about kind of these parameters, if we're taking our wine analogy, they've got acidity and tannin and structure. What are some of the things that when you hear a recording for the first time and you're trying to identify a piece, what, what are some of the things that you listen for that might give you a clue that we can use in this exercise to kind of narrow something down? It's a wide question, but a few ideas. Yeah, no, it's a good question, and it's it's interesting to do it because um, some of the, the parameters we don't think about at a certain point, um, and so it's good for me um, as a conductor to go back and try and like bring these to consciousness. I think probably the first one is like what instruments are playing, um, and that's maybe the most obvious one that that you might not think about. But like, was this instrument? Um, when did people play this instrument? That can narrow you down to a uh, good uh, a century at least um and um and what combinations of the instruments are there what size of the ensemble is it like a big orchestra playing is it something more intimate um and then the other big one for me would be um i guess the harmony of the music um and that that's going to tell us a lot about um about when and also where where it's coming from. Um, this is most obvious if you're comparing music across many centuries, um, which we're not in this case, but if you're comparing music, atonal music from the 20th century um, with Baroque music from the 18th century, um, then you're going to have uh, an easy time saying, okay, that one sounds beautiful or pretty, and that one is more chaotic and dissonant. Um, and that can narrow things down. Um, but also it's going to be interesting because with the Romantic era, which we're doing today, there are a lot of different shades within that, um, which are difficult to pick up on, um, even if you're a professional musician. Yeah, I think those are two excellent points. And in both cases, uh, for our listeners, I think both in terms of instrumentation and in terms of harmony, we kind of take it for granted. This is a great exercise, as you mentioned, because this, these are things that we don't always think about uh, intuitively as professional musicians, but um, harmony tends to get more complex and more varied as you get later. And so that is a real clue. You know, by the end of the 19th century that we're dealing with here, harmony was much more complex than at the beginning of the 19th century. Same with instrumentation. A lot of instruments that would not have been used by a Mozart at all are, are commonplace towards the end of the 19th century. Maury, any other thoughts on what we, we might be listening for here? Yeah, I think, you know, the ones that Sasha mentioned are, are totally where I was, would start as well. 
The only other thing that comes to mind specifically with orchestras is the orchestration itself. You know, if you're thinking about um, a piece for piano, uh, harmony will totally be different depending on the different era and things like that. But the instrument will be the same. You know, you only play a chord so many different ways on the piano, whereas different composers all writing in the same year in the 19th century would organize their harmony very differently depending on, you know, do I give the chords to the winds and the melody to the violins or how do I, how, how complicated do I want the orchestration? Do I want it in very clean blocks where it's very easy to tell who's playing the melody and who's playing the accompaniment or do I want it much more uh, disorienting? And that's something that's sort of orchestra specific. Um, that's another distinguishing factor in this kind of thing. Let me also ask you guys about some of the other, as we get more narrow and we think about like type of piece that this could be and potential time period. I th most of the things that we're going to listen to today are orchestral works. And I was even thinking about this in the context of um, some of the clips that you guys briefly sent, but what are the actual types of pieces that we could find an orchestra playing in and how might we be able to hear them differently? So, you know, if I say to you, this could be a numbered symphony, you know, what, how does that differ from something that might be a tone poem with an actual name, let alone a ballet an opera or whatever we, what else we can think of? Um, anybody have, have thoughts on, on how to differentiate some more of those kind of piece specific things and also how those might come back to help us determine a composer or something like that. Definitely. And it, when, when we're at the point of, of trying to figure out um, what the actual composer is, who the actual composer is, um, then we're going to be thinking a lot about like, okay, what kind of music um, does this sound like? Does this sound like serious music that would be played in a concert hall? Does this sound like music that would be danced to in a ballet? And based on the answer to that, we're going to have um, have a different response because different composers had different specialties. Some wrote a lot of operas, some wrote mainly symphonies, some wrote a lot of chamber music, um, some wrote a lot of ballets. Um, so that's going to be one of the ways that we can kind of narrow it down at the end. Yeah, and I also want to ask, um, Maury, I, I, when we think about the time period and some potential regional or country specific divisions. Are there any things that you look to there besides harmony that might clue you into uh, this might be from, from one place or one specific time period as opposed to, to something else? Sure. I think, um, you know, it's, I, I, you know, as we get more and more specific, the lines get, blurrier and blurrier and you have French sounding Germans and British sounding French. And, you know, it's like a very, it, there's a lot of overlap over here, you know, being Berlioz was claimed by people of many countries to be from their own land. Right. So it's, it gets blurry, but I think that, uh, the organization of like, if you think about development of a melody and how that gets presented and, whether it's um, the sort of blockiness versus murkiness of how that gets presented is often a clue into regional differences. Think about the difference between the way, you know, Bruckner would present a melody and the way Debussy would present the same melody in the same harmony. Um, definitely 
uh, difference in style of how they lay out the musical argument. Yeah, I actually think that's a great point that I hadn't necessarily even really thought of for myself, but I think length and style of presentation of melodies is a very key one. So if we think about someone like Debussy, as you mentioned, it will almost certainly be short kind of segmented melody clips and often they'll be repeated as opposed to a Tchaikovsky or a Bruckner might unfold over the course of 30 seconds to a minute. Um, and those differences are things that, that we'll be, we'll be listening for as well. I think the best way to illustrate it is by, by doing it. So you guys are going to start. Um, I'm sure more, uh, it's hard to even think about all the possibilities or all the things that you think about when trying to identify something like this. But I think some of them will present themselves as we deal with our examples here. So I'll give you guys one that I selected first. Um, this is a, a piece for, for orchestra. I hope I'm not giving anything away by saying that, but that is something that we should, should listen for when we're trying to identify these things. Um, but that is all I will say about it. So uh, all of our listeners, as well as our guests, can listen to this clip now. We'll just play short 30-second to a minute clips, and then you guys will have the task of trying to identify what this is. I'm excited that you guys have to go first, but... It is, after all, my show, so I get to uh, subject you guys to this torture right off the bat. I'm nervous. This <laughs> is very how generous of you, Jacob. Well, it's listen, really, really and I want all of our listeners to know, in the interests of integrity, we're not going to edit this portion of the podcast. If any of us fall flat on our face and our careers are ruined, that's that's fine. But I also think I can speak for uh, the the two other people on this call, maybe not myself, but these guys, as I mentioned, they not only did, are doing me a great service by coming on and attempting to do this, but I know from personal experience that they have super, super extensive knowledges of especially the orchestral repertoire. And so I really had to dig deep to find some things that that uh, that would be challenging here. So in any case, if we fall flat, flat on our faces, uh, anyone who criticizes likely would have done the same. So it's all in good fun. And here we go. Here's our first clip for these guys to try to identify. So my initial impression is, I mean, some of the stuff that we would have talked about before, like instrumentation and general harmony, we are have already narrowed because we've decided that we're doing romantic repertoire. And so some of that stuff is certainly part of my initial impression, but that's also stuff that we knew going in. I guess the thing that stuck out to me when I'm thinking about trying to narrow down a region or a composer or anything like that is the quality of the accompaniment. And this very uh, sort of almost anxious, perpetual motive, uh, very energized accompaniment in the in the strings that's going on, very undulating, is um, 
I, I found that quite distinctive and sort of has set me down a path on who I think it might be. Yeah, same here. Um, definitely uh, our normal kind of composition of an orchestra, um, strings, winds, and at the end, um, some horns. Um, uh, doing a kind of call going up. And to me, that makes me feel like this must be something German. Um, just, I don't know why, and I would have to kind of do a little more thinking about that, but those that kind of horn call, bum, 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 um, is a very Germanic thing that you'll hear from, let's see, Weber to Wagner and all over. Um, I totally agree with you. That, that's That's one of the things that did it for me regionally as well. Yeah, I included that specifically because I wanted to. And I think what, what you're alluding to is there are so many clues. And this particular one is this kind of like hunting horn, yeah, uh, natural intervals in succession that you just hear and you're like, German. Sorry, but continue. Yeah, you imagine them riding into the, the woods um, uh, with, you know, uh, after some beer and <laughs> or something. Precisely. Uh, um, and then a couple other things that I, some, the, the kind of melody that come about, um, this kind of lilting, um, as well as for me, the biggest clue, although if I'm wrong, it's going to be embarrassing, um, is the double notes, um, where you hear a lot of, uh, instead of, Say the strings instead of the strings going da 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 It goes da 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 dum. That's such a good idea. I mean, I don't know if we're thinking of the same one, but if we are, <laughs> uh, then you know, there's some interesting cello writing by the same person. Exactly, and with but, exactly but, the same double notes. Mori and I are both cellists, um, <laughs> and so I think we're. I think we're, we can safely guess together. Jacob, should we guess? Uh, yeah, go for it. Okay. What do we do? Do we say it at the same time? Um, I mean... You, we can go one, no. two, three, go. Yeah, do it. Okay, one, two, three, Schumann. Schumann. Okay, nice. I, uh, okay. Interesting. So I I do have to say that this this is Schumann. Excellent. Yes. yes. Oh. Well done. Well done. Um, and any thoughts on when this could have been been written and uh do you want to venture a guess at a a piece or a type of piece or and any any more specificity than schumann which is very good already um <laughs> this is where it gets scary <laughs> yeah i, I mean um, schumann is i mean it feels a little bit later for him it, i mean it doesn't feel like it's from the symphonies so i guess i would say overture but not I mean, not, I don't, that's more my process of elimination rather than, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and at, at some points I was like, wait, is this Schumann? Because the harmony sounded kind of like a little more intense and searching than maybe in the earlier stuff. Um, in terms of the date, uh, luckily he, I mean, not luckily for him, luckily for us right now, he didn't live super long. So it could only be, uh, you know, up to kind of mid nineteenth century, um, he eighteen fifty six, which I just confirmed via Google to make sure I didn't embarrass myself on here. Um, so yeah, I think we're gonna we can go with some late Schumann, but I have no idea the piece. I think there's there's a lot of Schumann out there that I probably don't know. Uh, there were some overtures, um, there's some uh, larger choral works that. Um, I don't think it's the there's this piece for four horns that he has like a concert 
concert piece, I think it's called, for Four Horns. I don't think this is that, but I it reminded me of that when the horn entrance that you included at the end, which was a good clue. It is not the concert Stuck, which is a good, it would have been a good guess and would have been a tripping up point, but it is, in fact, you guys are right on the money. It is an overture by Schumann, the overture to Genevieve, um, which was written in very not, 1847, 48. Wasn't one of his like last works. It's kind of in the middle, but, but, uh, certainly later than like 1842, 43, which is, was one of his, his most kind of fruitful years. So, Excellent call by you guys. Very specific. Oh. Pretty much right on the hit the nail right on the head. I'm I'm impressed. Glad, glad we got to start with that one. Okay, good. good it's going good. to go downhill from here. Oh, to definitely. Be, to be fair, the other one that I chose, I think you guys have no chance of getting. Yeah, but, but that's I, I wanted to give one that was a little more gettable. So, I think next up is is uh, Sasha's. So. Why don't we give Sasha's first clip a, a listen? Any Anything to tell us about this one, or should we just... Uh... I don't think so. I think we can just dive in. All right, let's do it. So here's Sasha's first clip for our listeners and for Maury and myself. Um, honestly, that's a really tricky one. And I, I, uh, <laughs> for me, it's going to be shooting in the dark a little bit. I'll, I'll give my initial impressions. So again, if we're taking our kind of broad strokes, uh, approach first, we heard some percussion in there. We heard a cymbal crash. We heard some, some timpani, potentially a bass drum. Um, that would suggest later ish. And also it might it will rule out some romantic composers for us. So this is not gonna be a Beethoven or a Schubert or a Brahms or a Schumann, a Mendelssohn. Um the symbol crash by itself and uh the the presence of a big percussion contingent, I think, will rule out some of those composers. Then there's also this, what I'm torn about, and Maury, I think uh if you have any thoughts on this, that that would help. There's two, like, there's there's three things that I notice in that clip. One is a very distinctive rhythm, this yump, a bump, bump, a bump, bump, which feels very, like, martial and uh, direct and kind of militaristic. Then there's this kind of, this to me sounds very much like a some sort of tone poem as opposed to a symphony, because there's this very windy kind of syncopated passage in the middle where it, it, it builds up to this cymbal crash. And then that kind of chorale that we hear towards the end, to me, if I'm just giving away my leanings off the bat, the har- the harmony of that chorale to me sounds Russian in some way. And that's my initial leaning. So, so those are my initial takeaways, but more, I'm curious to think your thoughts. No, I, I, I mean, I was, I was hoping you weren't going to say that because then I would get to say something different and interesting. Uh, but I, I agree with you completely. I think 
you know, we were talking at the beginning of this about the difference between a symphony and other types of ballet or tone poems, something like that. And I also, when listening to this, felt that it was programmatic in some way. And I was trying to think about why I had that reaction and what I came up with, because it was just an instinctual reaction. And so what I came up with was that it was the music was descriptive in a way that was not specific to a form, right? So if you're listening to a symphony, it's very important often that the composer shows you, well, this is the first melody and this is a second melody. And now we're going to do this transition material and stuff like that. And this clip had a lot of very dynamic music, but not presented in a way that was obviously part of a structure like that, which is, I think, what led me to imagine that maybe there's something going on on stage that would provide that structure. Um, similarly, on the on the harmonies, I also think the distinctive rhythm, that feels very you know Russian military to me. Also, the sort of blockiness of the chords and the sort of like hammer blows of chords uh, felt similar to sort of Russian overtures that I've heard. So that I, I would agree with that. But beyond that, I'm, 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 I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a person in mind for this. So, but let's, so let, for our listeners, let's just narrow down some of the people that we might be thinking about because Russian romantics um, that come to mind are, for me, you have an, an early one in Glenka, and then you have Glinka was kind of the father figure to a lot of later Russians, which for me would include um, people who would write a lot of these tone poems like Mazorksky. Um, even later would be Rimsky-Korsakov. To me, this this feels a little early for Rimsky-Korsakov, but I could be wrong. And then you've, you've got some more fringe possibilities like a... Um, What's that guy's name? Like Kalinikov is a possibility. Um, uh, there's a couple other, but but those are what I think about. And then the other big elephant in the room is Tchaikovsky. And to me, this does not feel like Tchaikovsky. But I'm curious, Maury, do you, like what? How, what are your feelings on this and Tchaikovsky? I agree that it feels like Tchaikovsky and everything except the the. Uh, present like style like the, the the instruments i think are totally you know on board and even the harmonies and stuff like that but it's a little too uh maybe even theatrical is the right word yeah and it, be- it, it it also feels to have a little too much of that kind of like like the chorale to me sounds like a very modal russian folk harmony chorale that you would hear in like pictures at an exhibition by Mazorsky or Russian Easter Overture by Rimsky-Korsakov. Another one I forgot to mention is Borodin, who is is also a possibility. Um, What do you think? I mean, I'm leaning like in that Mazorsky-Borodin area. I think, I mean, I think Mazorsky is the safe, the the safer bet. For some reason, I, I don't, I don't have something is holding me back from saying it's Mazorsky and I'm not sure why. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. It, it, um, and that also would suggest to me, I don't know how deep of a cut Sasha went with this, but that would also <laughs> suggest to me that it could be one of these like Kalinikov type 
um, kind of what we would think of as like potentially B-list composers. But right. what do you think about, do you think it could be, I mean, you're probably going to say no, but I'd be curious. Do you think it could be really early um, 20th century giants, like really early Shostakovich or something? Yeah, it could. It could be, it, it could be like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's very early Stravinsky. To be honest, I think I would have heard it before. Um, it could be like a student piece of Shostakovich, or it could be, I also don't think it's Rachmaninoff. I think, I think um, I'm leaning towards Mazorsky as the safe bet, but kind of, uh, and, and, and we're thinking like maybe some sort of Night on Bald Mountain-esque tone poem of a piece. Is yeah, that, I think, yeah. I mean, I think I'd bet the field against Mazorsky, but I'd yeah. take Mazorsky over anybody else. Okay, yeah, I like that. So we're going like 40% Mazorsky. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're sticking to our Russian. So Sasha, the big reveal. We're not sure on this one, but tell us, what is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'm going to let you narrow it. I'm going to tell you that you're wrong. Um, and I'm going to tell you that you were right in that it's Slavic, but you were wrong in that it's Russian. Uh, um, so, and I would also encourage you to think about the, the chorale thing you heard at the end, which I think uh, I love that moment because it's this, this really, really fun melody, um, that to me sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. So like who with that hint writes like just these really fun melodies that are nice to listen to. Okay. So now, I mean, I feel like it's been semi given away. I, so I thought, to be honest, that this, I originally thought a little bit of the elephant in the room, Dvorak, but I thought like, maybe not, but now that I think about it, it felt a little pedestrian for Dvorak, but one of the knock on many of Dvorak's kind of tone poems and earlier pieces is that they feel a little pedestrian. And there's also an enormous amount of Dvorak, the very early symphonies that I don't know. I still don't think that it's is a true. Yeah, but Dvorak is one of those people where the ratio of you know music he wrote to music we hear is very skewed against music he wrote. So I, I think that's fair. Well, you were right in that it's not a symphony, and you were right that it's a tone poem slash overture. Um, okay, I'll tell you, it is Dvorak. Um, it's the Othello. Uh, I think it's an overture. It's part of a three-part tone poem kind of thing um, from 1892. Um, and that was tricky, I admit, because it doesn't sound like um, necessarily instantly that must be Dvorak in that it's um, there's not this folk quality. Um, and uh, But I think you were right to focus on the percussion and the harmony um, and the 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 big moment at the end, um, and so I think considering you got it wrong, you guys were, were quite close. You just had deviated too early off of the right track. A very very generous uh, curve there, Sasha. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate that. Yeah, that's uh, man, that's interesting. I think uh, I mean now that you say it, it makes some sense. But yeah, it's those Dvorak pieces are are. Uh, I, I feel like I should have thought of that because they are kind of they are kind of sleepers. Um, okay. Anyways, so next up is Maury has chosen one for us. Um, so any introduction to this one, or should we just just get it going for orchestra? All right. Excellent. Here we go. 
okay, so this is like quintessential romantic orchestral writing, right? It's like super thick, luscious string sounds. Um, it's not like you can hear instruments individually kind of brought out. It's kind of one homogenous texture, um, kind of longing. I know that's a weird emotional thing to to come into play, but some composers have that more than others. Um, but definitely this kind of like reaching um, and nostalgic quality coupled with a like an orchestration that's really thick um, and yet singing. Um, that's the stuff that stood out to me. Yeah, I think same for me. We should give a disclaimer that in in opening this clip, Sasha uh, was able to see what it was. So I'm going to take a stab at this one solo. But I feel okay about this because, well, I mean, I have a strong hunch on this one, unlike the last one. But also, if I'm wrong, it's going to the fall uh, from from height is going to be so much worse. Um, but this everything that Sasha said holds true. It's highly romantic Um kind of longing, pleading melodies. There's also this horn solo at the end that sounds to me quintessential this composer. And so here again, I'm inclined to go to Russian music and specifically to the music of Rachmaninoff, who this sounds to me to be very, very Rachmaninoff-esque. And specifically, um, you know, Rachmaninoff did not write that much orchestral music. And so actually, this is one of the areas where I feel like I can potentially narrow this and make something of a guess because I think I know from from just knowing the repertoire that this is not the second symphony. This is not the third symphony. This is not symphonic dances. It's not uh, one of the piano concertos. And so that actually, it's not Isle of the Dead. Um, and so that leaves us with a very few... Uh, number of pieces that actually have names. And it sounds to me also to be earlier Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff kind of distilled his style. And the second symphony is a super long piece that sounds a little bit like this. And so I am inclined to guess that this is the first symphony of Rachmaninoff. Although I know there are also... There are some other pieces that he wrote. There's this piece called The Bells that I thought I knew decently well, but uh, it could, I guess, be that, although I don't think it is. So I'm going to go Rachmaninoff. I'm going to go... And this type of writing for Rachmaninoff, he lived until 1945, but this type of writing, I would say approximately 1895 to 1905. And I'm just going to guess First Symphony. And here, listeners, we have a great example of why Jacob is the host of this podcast, while Sasha and I are the guests. This is Rachmaninoff. This is the first symphony. It was written in 1895. 1895, exactly? Correct. Come on. That is, I mean, I did not look that up beforehand, I promise. (laughs) This is a clip from the third movement. Wow. So, I mean, there's two takeaways. Two takeaways. One is that I need to know this piece. Um, and that's kind of embarrassing. But the second is that uh, quintessential Rachmaninoff, and he's definitely a composer who um, who is who has a, a unique style and excellent choice. You always have to compliment the the chooser of the um, example when it's so clear like that. Uh, so 
bravo there as well. So we're back to me, and I feel bad. Definitely not going to be receiving any compliments for this choice here because this one is super hard. But I think this is the only one that we have on here that's not a symphonic piece. I think if these guys kind of use everything at their disposal, I'm not going to say that they can even come close to guessing what this is, but I think there are some clues in here that might point them in, in some kind of direction. So in any case, no introduction other than this is our only non-orchestral piece and good luck to, to these guys. Okay, this one is, um, I'm scared, because um, at some points, I think it's one thing, and at other points, I think it's another. Um, let's see. Okay, so definitely violin and piano. I think I got that much. Um, uh, other things that stood out to me, definitely focus on melody, right? A lot of it is really beautiful. Also, a focus on its kind of orderly and how it's put together. There's one phrase, and then that phrase kind of gets repeated in a different key. Um, and then, let's see, I'm trying to think of what else happened. Um, it kind of builds to this climax, and then at the very end, there was like some sort of technical, um, virtuosic kind of thing that the violin did that's maybe making me think that um, that might be important, uh, but I'm not sure yet. What about you, Maury? Yeah, I, I share your... Uh, sort of going back and forth. You know, in the beginning, it almost sounded like it could be Schubert or something. And then by the end, I was very much not thinking it was Schubert. And, you know, could have even guessed, if you had just played the last 10 seconds, I may have told you like Poulenc or something. You know, so it's a very, uh, which, which, which makes me think that we're dealing with something, somebody who was a little bit intergenerational themselves, probably, you know, it, it makes me want to go sort of end of the 19th century, somebody who is maybe more of a bridge in between that kind of classic, you know, sonata writing of Brahms and in, in, in the middle of the century and the more Prokofiev-esque, you know, sweet, almost sweet as more than sonata style of, of composition in the early 20th century. And I, I'm trying to think of who lives in that sort of, in 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 between space and i am not sure do you guys want me to give you a little hint to to help because i think one thing i think everything you've said so far is very good and i didn't I, this is not i don't think it's i i do think there's some elements of this composer's unique style and what we heard there but also 
as you said, it's kind of a melting pot of a lot of different possibilities. So let me just narrow it for you that this is not from one of the countries that we generally think of as kind of the major romantic traditions. So it's not a German piece. It's not a French piece, not an Italian piece, not a Russian piece. So it comes from somewhere else. And so maybe that uh, helps in kind of a slightly narrowing fashion, although probably not a ton. Sasha, did you catch the the very end, the, the last figure at, at the very end is so distinctive. I feel like I've heard it before and it feels very characteristic. Did that stick out to you at all? Which part? The, that, yeah, right at the very sounds, end. That sounds very familiar and yet triggered nothing. Um, <laughs> let's see. Okay, so that narrows out, that like knocks out a bunch, not Brahms. I was even thinking maybe it's Franck something because it sounds a little bit like Violent Sonata, but it's not Franck. So what countries are left, Maury? Um, I mean, the the that that little segment at the end feels very uh, northern. You're like like Sibelius kind of. I don't necessarily. It doesn't really. I'm not sure about Sibelius, but like it feels like that region. You know okay. that, that. So our options of composers from that region Grieg? are Sibelius, Grieg. Um, that's kind of all I've got. Uh, <laughs> we might need another hint, Jager. I would say that you guys are on an incredibly good track. If we were playing hot or cold, I would say that you guys are currently very hot. Okay. Well, I know that Sibelius was a violinist, um, and maybe he wrote some violin pieces early on. Definitely would be early Sibelius, right? Um, It'd have to be, yeah. Uh, but um, I don't I don't know very much about Grieg except outside of um, you know Pier Gint, piano concerto, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm afraid I'm almost at, at all the information I, I have. What about you, Maury? I, I, I'm sort of in the position that Jacob and I were in with Mazursky, where I feel like Sibelius is the best candidate I have, and yet I don't think it's him. But I think that's where I'm landing. All right. Any? Uh, do we want to posit a final guess or uh, kind of a type of piece and composer and general time period? How about we say it's from one of these suites? You know, there's a lot of pieces around yeah. this time period that are, you know, five scenes from childhood or, or that, that kind of thing. Um, let's, let's, Definitely let's, something let's, lighter, let's, not so serious. Or, or yeah. yeah. So let's, let's call it a Scandinavian suite. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A Scandinavian suite for violin and piano. Could be some. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> that is pretty good. Pretty good guess. In fact, it is by Grieg, not Sibelius, but but uh, it was that was a good guess. This is Grieg's uh, second violin sonata. Grieg wrote this. I I chose this because I happened to play it uh, as a violinist myself, and I figured I should you know include something that I knew I would know, but nobody else would know. But admittedly, that was a very tricky one. The one thing that I thought might point in a direction is the kind of dance topic at the beginning reminds me a lot of specifically Anitra's dance from Pier Gint. It has this slightly like folk-esque mm. character. It's not the thing about Grieg, Grieg is the most famous Norwegian composer, and I don't know that I included anything in this clip that was particularly Norwegian-y uh, giveaway. But 
you know, and, and if we had heard something that sounded very Finnish, we could have potentially thought Sibelius. But I think you guys, I mean, that was a very admirable effort, to be honest, given given the total lack of information that you had from this clip. Who's up next? It's I think Sasha has another I guess clip I'm for up us. Next. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Here's another clip. Um, yeah, take a listen. Doesn't need any intro. All right. So this one also feels to me like maybe there's something else going on. You know, there might be a, a stage involved. It's, it's almost feels like a ballet. And so I'm, I'm thinking ballet. I'm thinking a combination of very light and rhythmic wind sections with lyrical, for instance, the lyrical cello line and other, other moments like that, which is a distinctive combination that you hear with some composers and not with others. And I'm also thinking not too late. This feels very uh, pretty, pretty, pretty safe harmonically. How, how does that, how does that sound to you? Yeah. I mean, to me, I would agree. The one thing that, the one thing that throws me on this clip is that I definitely agree that it's either ballet or opera or, and specifically like if it's opera, it's a kind of, a lot of operas have ballets or a ballet-esque section of an opera. Um, the challenge that I have with this one is that when people write this kind of slightly, what, what kind of derpy, trivial sounding music a little bit, you know, that could be from a wide range of time periods. Because to me, this could be written as late as by like a Prokofiev or something like that. And it could be as early as a Berlioz. The composer, I'm curious what you think about this, Maury, but honestly, the composer that just screamed out to me early was the composer of The Nutcracker, Tchaikovsky. And that um, this sounds very Nutcracker-esque to me, and I almost can't get Tchaikovsky out of my head, but there are a lot of other possibilities. What, what do you think? Yeah, I feel like when I was describing the qualities that I was hearing, I was just thinking of things that I hear in the Nutcracker of, you know, light winds and lyrical melodies and things like that. And so I think that that's true, but I agree with you that especially once that era of the Nutcracker and a whole host of sort of similar ballets had been written, it sort of almost became a sort of default incidental music for scene changes in Puccini or scene changes in Prokofiev's, you know, Romeo and Juliet suites or scene, like any, you know, it it sort of became like the people running around changing the set soundtrack. And so because of that, I think it it, it does make appearances in lots of places. Yeah. And so even when you mentioned Puccini there, I mean, Puccini honestly feels like a serious possibility as well. And so for me, it's hard to narrow the country on this one because I think it's either, I think it's either Russian or Russian ballet imitation, one of the two. 
but I think it could be Puccini as like a kind of opera transition. I think it definitely could be Tchaikovsky. It could be like a, it could be like a Tchaikovsky. It could be just a Tchaikovsky ballet. I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of those, but it could also be like a Tchaikovsky opera. Um, I wish I knew Eugene Onyegin well enough to say that this is definitively not in Eugene Onyegin, but I don't. That being said, I would guess that it's not. Um, and then from there, I like, I also, I don't think this is Swan Lake or the Nutcracker, obviously, but I think um, it could be a Tchaikovsky ballet, but it also could, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Maury? I mean, I would, I would feel comfortable with Tchaikovsky ballet. The only reservation I have is that we know a lot of them. And so since we don't recognize it, yeah, uh, that, that. That's a that's a problem, but that's, that, that, that's probably just our fault. For yeah, not yeah, no, I mean that that's the only thing that the the ego is the only thing that pushes me to the opera world instead of the ballet world. But um, yeah, I'm 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 keen to say like Tchaikovsky ballet or opera. I think you know we we tried we we tried to go for Russia the last time Sasha picked something. And we were thwarted, and I think we should try again. Yeah, I think we should try again. I think he went Russian this time, so let, yeah. let's go with Tchaikovsky. I'm going to say what it would like, kind of 1870 to 1880 is going to be my guess. I'm fine with that. Yeah, um, that's that's going to be final answer. Uh, that was correct. Uh, in that, it was Tchaikovsky. It was a ballet, Sleeping Beauty, but that was in 1890. So uh, I don't think that was really a strike against you. I mean, as you said, once this kind of sound was established um, and this is a dance scene within the ballet, so, like, you got it. You hit the nail on the head. Embarrassing because, I mean, it's semi-embarrassing because these ballets are super long, but I have conducted certain selections from (laughs) Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) And I still did not know this, so that one, uh, let's, uh, I just have to fess up to that. But in any case, you know, okay, so we, we did get it. I'm glad we, we got well that done. one. Nice, nice job, Maury. Um, and Maury, we, we come to you, your, your, last, uh, your last clip here. Any introductions for this one? No introduction. Um, I, I'm, I'll, I'll give a hint partway through if necessary, but I think, I think we're all right. All right, let's do it. Here is Maury's second and last clip here. This one also scares me a lot. Um, it's kind of a lot of the harmonies are kind of not super um, 
adventurous in terms of the spectrum. I mean, a lot of it is kind of sitting in a key and then sequencing to something else, which makes me think it's not, um, not you know, towards the end of the 19th century. Um, and at the same time, there are a lot of strange things um, and a lot of interesting things that, that, that are not from one of the usual suspects, um, uh, at least I don't think so. Um, so I'm thinking it's got to be somebody kind of a little bit off the beaten path or else, or else I'm, I'm totally off. Yeah. This one for me is, I I feel like it, it, it feels right at the tip of my tongue and I should absolutely know what this is. And I, I have like no clue. And I think, um, so off the bat, a few things. Again, the use of the horns specifically in the middle suggests to me, and the use of the clarinet right at the beginning. The clarinet, this kind of jovial clarinet melody, and then this hunting horn topic that we hear. To me, like two seconds in, I thought 100% Carl Maria von Weber. That was my, like, it's done, over. But three seconds in, there's this odd harmony. Um, yeah, it switches to minor all of a sudden, right? Yeah, um, like out of nowhere, and that instantly threw me for a loop. Um, then there was a very distinct syncopated passage, which means that the strings are off, so it's like bum 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 bum. You know, you hear this kind of rhythmic drive for a, a while, which to me should narrow the composers because I recognize that very distinctly, but I can't think of like how that would narrow it. And then this, the main melody, the with the grace note that goes, it, it's, it sounds so distinctive and yet I can't totally play. I mean, the, it feels German to me. Can we, can we say like German, Austro Germanic, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. At least trying to sound German, right? Yeah. Nothing more than the horns and the whatever uh, E flat major something like orchestra playing and all all together feels that way. Yeah, I, we should. I think, yeah, I think uh, another thing that you mentioned, which was a good point, is that like E flat major, uh, the key of this particular piece, is very historically loaded specifically for Germans because of the Eroica symphony and because of other E flat major pieces that are heroic. So that is yet another indicator that maybe, I mean, the thing that threw, threw us for a loop, like really distinct character ideas, like the beginning, there's this March kind of thing with just the winds and the clarinet, um, which seems very distinctive. And then it turns to minor things that like also maybe point us in the direction of someone who writes more opera stuff. I don't know. I, or an overture that speaks to me. Yeah, more Maury, than can you give us a symphony. little, a little hint? Sure. So a lot of the things you said are spot on. Um, definitely uh, the idea of it not being a, a symphony and leaning more towards, you know, overture land is, is a good one. Uh, the E flat and the horns, you know, pointing to to Austro Germanness again, spot on. Um, I will say that, you know, this is a very rarely performed piece, but not a very rarely performed composer. 
Is it is it unrepresentative of what we would necessarily think of this composer sounding like? In certain ways, uh, it's. I would say that it's unrepresentative in the sense that this this piece gives you, in very condensed form, a lot of idiomatic compositional techniques that this composer normally uses over much larger like like for instance the shift to major minor thing like that like it's very it's a, it's a boom 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 but just because it's this compendium of effects okay okay i actually have a thought i have a thought now um, Let's hear it. i'm gonna fall flat on my face again but this this okay. that hint sparked a, a a thought for me i think based on that everything that uh maury has told us and that it's a frequently composed composer uh, fre- frequently played composer who uh you know, this is a piece that we wouldn't know. This strikes me as it could be very early Richard Wagner. That's what was, I was going to say. Who was kind of a Weber-esque devotee and very well steeped in the kind of Germanic tradition. And it does... That's a possibility. And I even feel like I... I even feel like there's... You know, Wagner wrote these kind of like childhood operas. Um, yeah, one and, of the really early ones that nobody. Yeah, I, I. What do you What do you think about that, Sasha? I was I was also leaning that direction. I'm still a little unsure because it sounds so foreign to that. But our, Wagner was an interesting guy because he came to to composition like pretty late in life, obviously compared to someone like Mozart, but. Um, but so his development might not have been like super linear in the way that we would expect it to really sound like at least related to what he sounds like later. Um, so I'm I'm a little scared of it, but I think that's definitely a possibility, and is it is where my mind went as well. All right, I think I I, I kind of want to roll with that, and I think because there are a lot of these kind of young youthful pieces, not only operas but also like just orchestral compositions and overtures. There's this Faust overture by Wagner, which I, I I don't think this is, but there's some like concert overtures. And I think this is a, I, yeah, that's, that's the direction I want to go with this. And if that's, I still the, also liked the, the, the Weber idea and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to give that up completely, but I, I would say that Weber doesn't get performed that much really yeah. outside it, of like, a couple of things and some clarinet pieces, although the clarinet would be a Weber thing. Yeah. The clarinet Um, suggested Weber to me, although this is clearly not a clarinet concerto. For sure. But I think um, either Weber or early Wagner, and we're going to put this in like the 1830 to 1840 range. What do we, what do we think about that? Sounds good. Okay. I'm with it. Great reasoning, but the wrong answer. Uh, So, no. This was even even a little before that. This is Beethoven. What? <laughs> oh, okay, hold on. Okay, now that you've told us Beethoven, I want to guess the piece. Okay. Actually, okay, I have a thought now. Okay. There's this piece, Creatures of Prometheus, which is this right. big ballet. A lot of that is in E flat. So this could be Creatures of Prometheus. That's, so your that's heroica a, guess was very close. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good guess, but it's a even it, less it mount, oftenly the appreciated of olives one, the olive mountain one. What is that? 
<laughs> it's more obscure nope. than that. Okay, what is it? <laughs> this is King Stephen Overture. Oh, I've never heard of that in my entire life. I this have... was a piece. It's part of a suite of pieces. None of it gets performed at all. But to the extent that any of it gets performed, the overture gets performed. Um, and you know, it's this sort of compendium of effects. There's not a whole lot. It's a kind of ridiculous piece. It's very funny when you listen to it all the way through because it's just one sort of Beethovenian effect after another all jammed into five minutes. Okay, that is actually, though, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I'm upset now because I, I now I'm, that I'm thinking about it, like, all the things that you mentioned... This does sound. I actually I have heard King Stephen Overture performed before, and so I should have known this. But also, there are these show pieces. I think if I remember from my Beethoven biography reading, there are these show pieces that he wrote basically to make money. The Septet is one of them. Creatures of Prometheus is one of them, and they sound very dissimilar to. Most of the rest of Beethoven, they all happen, they all seem to be in E flat. The septet is in E flat. Creatures of Prometheus is in E flat. And they're kind of like a little trivial like this, but also just they're all of Beethoven's least played pieces now, but the most popular in his time. And I am disappointed because I feel like we. we this is pretty hard to live down. Yeah, this but, is, um... yeah. That was a hard one, though, admittedly. That was a good, it was fun. Yeah. And topical, happy birthday, Beethoven. Yeah. Are we recording this on Beethoven's birthday? I think we don't know, right? But possibly. Yeah, it's like some. He was baptized on the 17th, so yes. maybe he was born, whatever. That's a uh, topical one, yeah. So happy birthday, Beethoven. We got it completely wrong. Your your music has left <laughs> no impression on, you, yeah. on any of us. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, for joining me for this uh, exercise. Any big takeaways you have from from this exercise, or just things that you think uh, our listeners can can take away when they're kind of listening to music and potentially trying to to play this fun game? Well, if uh, our failures show nothing else, um, it's that you can really be totally wrong in your impressions, and that's totally fine. And I think that's maybe the best takeaway. Yeah, that and also just that, you know, you engage with a piece in a completely different way when you're listening like this. And so, you know, you hear things that you wouldn't otherwise hear and you focus on things that you wouldn't otherwise focus on. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of feeling that oftentimes it's hard to know how you're supposed to listen to a piece. And, you know, there's a million ways into any piece, but this is a great way in. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's... that's uh that's perfect. And it's, it's kind of the the point of what we do here on the podcast. And I think you're right too. I mean, I, there's no way I'm forgetting this dinky little melody from the King Stephen overture. It's going to follow again. you forever. Yeah, exactly. But when you listen like this, you're, you're right. It kind of, your, your attention is activated and it's really, well, I want to thank these guys for, uh, for joining us today and We'll be back with with some more of these. I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Certainly fun fun for us. How many did we actually get right? I'm trying to think. So, um, what was we got? You guys my, got my first one. We got your first one. You missed my Dvorak. Then missed we, Dvorak. What was Maury's first? One? Nailed the Rachmaninoff. The Rachmaninoff was A plus plus plus. And um, then you got my uh, Sleeping Beauty Tchaikovsky. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think three it was for six. Three. Fifty percent. 
We'll do a. Uh, we'll be back with another episode, a uh, contemporary episode at some point, and see if we can go four for six. But in the meantime, I want to thank my guests for joining us today, and for all of you for sticking with us. Hope you enjoyed, and, and we'll be back soon. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks so much.